Good afternoon, everyone. We're glad to see you all here. My name is Carol Werner, and I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. And we are glad that you are all here as part of this very special day of Stand Up for Transportation, which is happening across the country in so many states and congressional districts as we speak. So today, I think it's very important as we, this is the second in a series of three briefings that EESI is holding in conjunction with the American Public Transportation Association. And we are right now looking sort of right down the barrel of the expiration of a hugely important piece of legislation, the federal transportation bill which affects transportation across the country. One of the things that I think we so often just take for granted because it's kind of always there, but transportation touches all of us, our communities, our jobs, where we go to shop, uh, all sorts of services, how we get goods. It affects all of us every day. And we often just take it for granted and don't think about what's really involved how important the stakes are, what it takes to really run this huge amount of infrastructure across our great country. So we thought that it was very, very important today as we're really looking at the impacts of transportation and indeed of the transportation bill and what really is at stake to really have this kind of a conversation and to learn much more uh, specifically about some of those impacts and to hear key voices who are really involved in terms of thinking about the economic impacts, what this means for economies across the country, the whole role of transportation across the country. To kick off our discussion this afternoon, I want to first turn to Paul Ballmer, who is the Legislative Assistant for Transportation and many other things for Representative Earl Blumenauer of Portland, Oregon, and of course, Congressman Blumenauer is a member of the Ways and Means Committee, which is very heavily involved with regard to thinking about transportation, how it will be funded, etc. And as we all know, he has also been a huge advocate for uh, transit. And as you will see from Paul's lapel, bicycles. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. Uh, thank, uh, thank you to ESI and APTA. I'm honored to be here. Uh, and, and we are here, as people are at uh, over 140 similar events around the country, uh, to stand up for transportation. This is not new territory. These are not familiar faces. We've all been here before. Uh, we all know that the surface transportation bill expires in seven weeks. We all know that when Congress passes a short-term extension, which we likely will, that will be the 24th such short-term extension uh, since we last had a six-year transportation bill. But we really shouldn't have to be talking about this year after year. Michael shouldn't have to explain the importance of long-term funding for his members and for transit systems and Americans across the country. Drew shouldn't have to talk about how important a stable, functioning transportation system is for our economy. And Emmett shouldn't have to put his projects and his planning on hold, uncertain if federal funding is going to run out on the eve of peak construction season. We shouldn't have to spend our time and resources pushing back against legislation that would cut the federal partnership of transportation funding by 80%, legislation that had support of over 50 members in the House last Congress and nearly a third of the Senate, 
we do. We do have to spend that time doing that. That's why we're here. That's why people around the country are standing up for transportation and a long-term, fully funded service bill. My boss, Congressman Earl Blumenauer, has the answer, and he's introduced legislation that would end the stalemate over the Highway Trust Fund by raising the gas tax for the first time in 21 years. This would be a 15 cent increase phased in over three years and indexed to inflation, and then the gas tax would expire in 10 years. That's because Congressman Blumenauer has separate companion legislation that would fund pilot projects like the one in Oregon, like the one in California, uh, that are exploring a road usage charge based on vehicle miles traveled as an alternative to the gas tax. So that as a nation, we can eventually transition to an efficient, equitable funding mechanism that is suitable to the technology and growth of a 21st century transportation system. And this time around, these aren't the only serious revenue solutions being discussed. Congressman Delaney has a proposal with widespread bipartisan support to fund transportation with a tax on corporate earnings that are currently sitting overseas. Two of my boss's colleagues on the Ways and Means Committee, Jim Renacci and Bill Pascrell, they've proposed a plan to index the gas tax and create a congressional task force to study long-term funding solutions. <laughs> my boss and I have been really encouraged by the creativity and the bipartisan nature of the conversation around transportation funding, and we finally seem to be getting somewhere. The pressure is building for Congress to act, and building for Congress to act in a real way. I'm excited uh, to be here today to hear more about APTA's new report. I'm excited to hear from the panelists about uh, what surface transportation and the expiration means for them. Uh, and today, we're all part of a national movement to push for action on surface transportation. And I look forward to working with all of you going forward to do that. Thank you. And it's really good to hear about all of the things that are being talked about and being proposed. And so if people have specific questions about that, you can certainly talk to Paul later in the briefing or, or afterwards uh, uh, for more information about that. Uh, I now want to introduce Michael Milanofi, who is the president and CEO of APTA, the American Public Transportation Association. And it has always been very much a, a, a pleasure to work with him and in his leadership of APTA because he brings so much uh, both enthusiasm for what he is doing and the importance of transportation and transit across this country. But he's also been very, uh, he's been able to articulate in very, very clear ways the important role that transit and transportation overall play across the country and how it means so much to so many different sectors and how we can best address that. And I think that he's able to really do that because of the deep experience that he brings from having run uh, four separate public transit agencies across this country as well as having spent considerable time in the private sector working for bus manufacturers, working in the whole um, uh, private business part of dealing with transportation. So it is my pleasure to introduce Michael to talk about uh, the new information that is out and what is really happening with regard to transit. Thank you so much, Carol. Good afternoon. How are you all doing? Good. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for being here today. We certainly appreciate it. Today is a fantastic day. 
at cities large and small all across the country in almost every single state in the nation. We have over 300 organizations, over 140 individual events where they are standing up for transportation. Note that I'm saying transportation, not just transit, because we're talking about all the transportation modes, because this is all about that when it comes to the surface transportation bill. And they are calling on Congress to give us a long-term, well-funded surface transportation bill. You can see on this great big gigantic slide screen over here, but uh, those dots and those lists, and I'll read off each one of them one by one now, um, you can see there are events all across the country. They're in big cities in New York and Chicago and L.A. They're in small towns all across the nation, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the places that is happening, tremendous breadth of events. And I want to thank Carol Warner and the EESI team for bringing us together today, and I want to thank Congressman Blumenauer and Paul for being here. You uh, always bring great passion to this topic, and we certainly appreciate it. And we're so pleased to have the National League of Cities represented here today by the Honorable Emma Jordan, the Mayor of Greenbelt, Maryland. Thank you, Mayor Jordan, for being here. We certainly appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure you wrote transit to get here. <laughs> Excellent. And equally pleased. Pleased to have our, our always uh, good friends talking about the public and private partnerships uh, here with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and we're so pleased to have Drew joining us here today, so thank you for being here, Drew. And as we look at uh, what's going on with Congress, with the administration, with the expiration of Map 21, as we know so, so closely here, we looked at what, what are we going to do? What message are we going to get across? And our chairman, Phil Washington, the current head of Denver RTD and soon to be the CEO of LA Metro in Los Angeles, he said he wanted to have a national day of local advocacy. And that's the Stand Up for Transportation Day. The idea here isn't for us to give a national message all across the nation. It's for local cities, counties, states to show their, national, their local perspective on a national issue. So we're doing it from the bottom up, not from the top down. And that's what makes today so exciting. His vision was to partner with different groups around the country. And as we look, we've got governors and mayors and senators and congressmen all across the country right now, as we sit here today, that are right now doing events all across the country. We're getting sent emails and tweets and Facebooks of all these different events that are going on. And to see those that you all work with and to see that Members that where our members are out there working together, telling this very important message, it is so critical. And to see that it's happening, not just on the coast cities, not just in the big six cities in the country, in cities large and small, all across this great map, it is so exciting to see that that message is resonating. So we talked about more than 300 of these groups. It's not just public, it's not just transit agencies saying, please give us more money. It's businesses also standing there with them. It's economic development messages, developers standing with them saying, we need these investments to build our cities, to build infrastructure, to build equipment and resources, standing together in public-private partnerships, saying that now, right now, we need these investments in public transportation. Now, we all in this room, we know what's going on. We know there are two bills that are coming out that are saying, throw transit out of the trust fund. We'll fix the highway program by throwing transit out. Well, it's simply not true. But we need to do more than just say, it sounds self-serving, I'm the head transit guy, right? Don't, don't throw us out. But well, we created a report, we did a study that looks at what are the impacts if we, these programs go away? What are the dollar impacts? What are the projects 
that are in jeopardy, that will disappear in this country as we're trying to bring our economy back. And we've looked at these things. And so we've created this web-based tool that allows you to go to your district and see what projects in your district would be at risk if we were thrown out of the trust fund, if the highway bill no longer had transit as part of the highway trust fund and the mass transit account, so that you could see what projects we would forego over the next six years, the number of buses that will no longer get purchased and replaced and lead to further degradation of our nation's critical infrastructure system, all the capital projects that would be in jeopardy. You can see a picture here. You see, see the bosses there. You see what projects are in the area that are happening and what things would be at risk, both current and new. And a report that's being released at this briefing is a national summary of these district-by-district district impacts and if no commitment is made to long-term federal funding. The analysis shows that proposals to cut federal funding for public transit will result, on average, in a 43% reduction in the community's overall capital funding investment. Overall, federal transit for both capital and operating would be lost, putting at risk more than 200 and $27 billion of economic productivity in our nation's economy over the next six years. The loss of federal funds would impact reliability, would impact safety, and would impact the current buses and trains and the service that we put on the nation's roads and rails each and every day. Let me give you some specific numbers. How many buses would be at risk for replacement? 38 thousand buses are up for replacement over the next six years. That's 57% of the nation's fleet that wouldn't get replaced, that wouldn't go with new clean technology for propulsion, that wouldn't have new technology for safety and security on board our vehicles. Overall, there are 66 new public transit projects that will be stalled. Many of these projects serve as catalysts for economic development in their regions. And you've seen this all across the country. We've put in bus rapid transit. We've put in streetcars and rail lines and commuter rail lines and the economic development, the private sector investment along those corridors that is helping to drive the economic recovery of this country and drives the economic competitiveness of this nation. Rail maintenance, rail expansion, rail car replacement would be significantly impacted if we didn't have these federal funds. Small and rural communities would be adversely affected because of the greater percentage of the funds that comes from the federal government. I'll give you some interesting stats on that in just a moment. These proposals to take transit out of the trust fund are short-sighted. Support for public transportation funding initiatives across the nation are as strong as ever. As we look at the partnership, local, state, and federal government provide 73% of the funds for public transit going to create and support private sector jobs. Because we know the federal government doesn't build the trains, the, the buses, the transit shelters, the facilities. Those are built by the private sector. And 73% of those dollars that come from the government flow through to the private sector and create jobs all across the country. And Drew's going to talk about some of the economic impact. We must also address our growing public transit ridership. Last year, public transit ridership in this country was 10.8 billion trips. That's the highest ridership number in 58 years. Back when Eisenhower was president and gas was 30 cents a gallon. So let's focus on 
some of the impact on small towns and rural communities. I'm often asked by members that come from small towns, they say, I see these buses in my town in the middle of the day that are empty. And first I always say, do you see minivans that are empty in the middle of the day too? And I go, well, yeah, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> but the reality is a higher percentage of the funding that funds public transportation in small and rural communities comes from the federal share. In 17 states that have the highest proportion of rural residents, they receive 40% or more of their public transportation funding from the federal government. And rural areas are also where you will often find those manufacturers that build the buses and the rail cars that operate around the country, built in places like Anniston, Alabama, Pemina, North Dakota, <coughs> Omaha, Nebraska. That's what is infrastructure is being built. With the loss of the federal transit program, it would mean a $13.8 billion hit to rural economies over the next six years. Public transit systems in small towns and rural areas are critical for all of America, and particularly for those with disabilities and those without an alternative form of transportation. This greatly impacts rural residents' access to jobs, to health care, and to schools, <coughs> things that are so important to all of us as Americans. Congressional inaction is also contributing to the severe backlog in state of good repair. You all know the numbers. You can say it with me. $88 billion backlog in state of good repair right now in this country in transportation infrastructure. We must address this. Our boldest, our oldest and our most heavily used systems, places like Boston, New York, Chicago, have major needs for investment to replace their vehicles, to replace their aging infrastructure. It's just not about old buses and trains and signals and bridges. It's about the safety it's about the economic impact of keeping those systems running safe, reliable, on time, every single time. We know that clock is ticking. We know we only have 52 days left before the expiration of the current MAP 21 legislation. The time for action is now. And that's why all of our members are out with your members in district right now sharing that message on a local level. And in talking about the importance of repairing and investing in railroads, bridges, buses, and other infrastructure. So I look forward to the discussion, hearing remarks from the Honorable Mayor Jordan, from Drew Preston and others. We thank you so much for being here. It's so important that we get this message out. Now is the time. This country needs good public transportation infrastructure investment. And thank you for your participation today. Michael, and I would just mention that this information is, will be up on EESI's website as well as obviously on AFTA's website. And last night we were just looking a little bit at this web tool to really look at how you could look across the country in terms of different states, different communities, different kinds of projects. And it's actually very cool. And so I really, really encourage you to, to really delve into it and to look at it because it really brings uh, another whole important perspective to it when you can really see, see it uh, across the country. And so please do take advantage of that. And I think it's, it's so important, too, in terms of making sure you check out those maps and that information with regard to supply chains because everybody has so many stakes with regard to thinking about how, how transportation 
is embedded in literally everything that we do, and we so often just take it for granted. So I now am very pleased to turn to Mayor Emmett Jordan. He is a current member of the Greenbelt City Council, serving as mayor there. He brings uh, a, a lot of experience in terms of managing all kinds of projects. He has a history of working for a number of different kinds of nonprofit organizations, different associations, including the University of Maryland and the, Smith, and the Smithsonian, and also doing private contracting work. And he uh, comes from uh, Ohio, but moved to Maryland about 12 years ago and, and has become the mayor there. And as mayor, he is also very, very active in the National League of Cities and serves on the Economic Development Committee of NLC. And so he brings a very important voice and perspective uh, to us today since local government is where so many things have to happen. Thank you very much, Carol. Hopefully I'll bring a uh, strong local voice. Uh, I'm a little bit taller than Carol, so I have to... <laughs> but uh, good morning. My name is Emmett Jordan. I'm mayor of the city of Greenbelt. Uh, I serve on the board of directors of the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments uh, here in Washington, D.C. And I'm here today as representative of the National League of Cities, where I've served as a steering committee member for the Community and Economic Development uh, uh, Subcommittee. So I'm really honored to be able to fill in and to represent NLC here uh, to kind of uh, laud uh, APTA and uh, EESI on, on the release of this report and actually uh, participate in this uh, important uh, event. Uh, NLC is, of course, the national uh, membership and advocacy organization for city officials and serves as a resource for the 19,000 cities, large and small towns and villages across the country, representing 218 million Americans. Local government is where things get done, and when you talk about transportation needs, and when you talk about moving people around, uh, a city like Greenbelt, which is a first-tier suburb of a metropolitan area, we're a small city, about 24,000 people, and we're outside of the Washington, D.C. area, so our, our fate, our economic uh, vitality is, is tied so closely with the rest of the metropolitan area. Uh, as a member of the board of the... Uh, our Metropolitan Planning Organization, COG, uh, we recently were presented a report on infrastructure needs in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And as Michael was pointing out, this uh, notion of state of good repair is something that's very, very important. And in the report on the state of infrastructure in Washington, D.C., it was projected that there was a close to a $16 billion shortfall over the next 15 years in Washington, D.C. Now, this is not just roads. It's uh, the transit system, WMATA. It's uh, rail. It's bridges. And, and these are all things for small towns, cities, suburbs, rural America. I mean, we're, we're all tied together. When you, when you look at our economies, when you look at our ability to our uh, the property values, they're, they're so tied up in transportation. Uh, in Maryland, there's a light rail project that we're struggling to move forward, the Purple Line, which will connect New Carrollton, Maryland, with Bethesda. It's an essential east-west connection. And at the, uh, the COG, the Metropolitan Planning Organization, as we try and look at these regional issues in a long-term perspective, we, we have to look out 10, 15 years. 
the constrained realities of where our funding is coming from. And it's, it's impossible to, to do, you know, as we go from year to year, uh, not really knowing if the transportation trust fund and the, tra the, the funding that's going to be there, it makes it just about impossible to really plan out. So when you talk about transportation, you're talking about economics. Uh, for us, transportation is a partnership. Uh, in, in my small town, uh, we have local roads, we have roads that are actually state highways, and we have uh, you know, interstate highways. Uh, one roadway that goes through Greenbelt is the Baltimore-Washington Parkway. It's, it's an example of the kind of partnerships, funding partnerships, we have to uh, try and manage uh, because the parkway is maintained by the National Park Service and because they actually subcontract maintenance to the Federal Highway Authority, we, we have to struggle when there are potholes and whatnot. You know, we, we have to take uh, the complaints and the problems from potholes, and we, we ask and we ask and we ask, and we can't really, we don't have a lot of control over a lot of the funding, transportation funding issues that we deal with. And yet, we're, we're the ones that are held accountable. You know, we have to serve our constituents. We have to make it possible for people to get around. So uh, this, this idea of uh, small towns and how they, they relate to the federal government is really, really complicated because we, we are so dependent on partnerships and being able to work with the state and the federal government. And with so much uncertainty, it's just really, really, really difficult. So transit needs are changing, and as more and more people are riding in hybrid cars and and as we want to make it easier for people to get around, uh, bicyclists and pedestrians, uh, my town, Greenbelt, is very, very proud of our heritage as being a very, very walkable community. And we want to enhance, to make it easy for people to, to ride bikes, to be able to get around. So uh, in local government uh, throughout Prince George's County and the state of Maryland and throughout the region, we talk a lot about complete streets, being able to kind of transition away from just highways, but also taking into account the needs of uh, pedestrians and cyclists. And so uh, once again, it comes down to funding. We have plans. There are things that our people, our residents, tell us that they want to do and need to do. And once again, we're sort of dependent on the funding. And with so much uncertainty, it's, it's it just you can't do anything if you don't know what's going to happen four or five years out, out uh, down the, the line. So um, I guess the investments by the federal government, they need to reflect the new reality of what people want to do. Riding bikes, walking, being more healthy. Uh, so, you know, this, this renewal of uh, MAP, the MAP 21 funding and the Highway Trust Fund, we really, really uh, are looking for some certainty and not these constant short-term renewals. It's just crippling our ability to plan. Absolutely. So I think that's all I wanted to share today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Mayor. Congratulations. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you very much, Mayor. Um, and I think that you said it as well as what one can in terms of the challenges that you have to face because your constituents expect you to deliver, right? <laughs> and uh, so we are now going to hear from Drew Preston, who's the manager for Congressional and Public Affairs with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And in that capacity, Drew works closely with, with uh, all of you in terms of congressional offices as well as federal agencies. 
with regard to the host of legislative and regulatory affairs on all um, on all manners of transportation in terms of all the different sectors of transportation as well uh, as water infrastructure. And I think that we will also be hearing from him in terms of thinking about the whole role of our economy, what it means to businesses across the country in terms of this important piece of infrastructure. Drew, welcome. Thanks for uh, ESI for having us. Uh, always happy to be here. APTA, good friend, partner. Uh, so I'm here on behalf of the chamber, on behalf of the American business community, uh, to talk about the importance of transportation to businesses, the importance of transportation to the economy. It's really very simple. Uh, there is no economy without transportation. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. There are no businesses without transportation infrastructure. It doesn't matter what your business is, what sector you're in. Um, you know, we talk about the economy in very abstract terms a lot of the time. Consumption, is it growing, is it shrinking? Uh, but transportation infrastructure is where the economy lives. It is the physical platform on which all of this is built. If you think of the Internet, I mean, it's inconceivable now to think of pre-Internet. You know, and think of what the Internet has done to commerce. I mean, imagine going back and buying something before the Internet. It's almost, like I say, it's inconceivable. The Internet, likewise, it actually has to live somewhere. It lives in computers, it lives on servers, it lives in wires in the ground. It doesn't just hang out in the, uh, in the air somewhere. So the uh, transportation infrastructure is the very same for the economy as a whole. Um, even if you don't have a car, if you don't drive, people say, well, I don't drive, why should I pay for transportation? Uh, everything in your house, your house, everything in this room, every stitch of clothing on you, the phone in your pocket, the room itself got here on transportation. There would be nothing around us, not this podium, anything without transportation. So uh, it's really hard to overstate its impact. Um, and, and Carol said it best, you know, it's really out of sight, out of mind for a lot of folks. It's so integrated with our everyday lives, we don't really pay any attention to it. The Chamber's multimodal. A lot of my members are multimodal in how they move things across the country. But, you know, uh, most people are aware of surface transportation. We're talking about 21 today, surface transportation. Again, even if you don't own a car, most of you have been in a car. You've been on a road, presumably. Uh, if you're not a pilot, commercial airline pilot, presumably you've been in an airplane. Um, I don't know if anyone took a steamship to Europe recently. Uh, water is really often sort of the worst out of sight, out of mind, unless you're commuting to work via barge, um, or you have a Mississippi River running through your backyard. You really probably don't pay attention to water and how much water moves. It moves a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, you know, if we're talking about transportation and the economy, it's really important to do sort of a cost-benefit analysis, right? Um, I jotted down some numbers because they're very big numbers in a lot of cases. When we talk about the benefits of transportation, 300 million Americans use the transportation system to access every part of their lives from jobs to markets where they're trying to acquire goods or sell goods back to, their health care services, recreational activities, all is accessed via transportation. 
the U.S. freight network alone, it moves 52 million tons per day. That's $46 billion of goods every single day. It does not take recess. It does not take lunch breaks. Every day it's moving these amount of goods. Uh, if you look at international tourism, it's a major intensive user of transportation. People coming to the country, it generated $181 billion in 2013. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Um, it's not just the level of economic output, it's geographic. I mean, Chicago really became Chicago because it was this hub between the breadbasket of the country and the markets of the Northeast and abroad. Um, it impacts home prices. Access to transit was probably the largest determining factor in where I bought my home in D.C. Could I get to work every day on public transportation? Uh, there's research that shows home values uh, raise if it improves uh, cost of living. Um, and again, how you, how you access that system. Um, but unfortunately, we're neglecting it, like most uh, things. Uh, total uh, percentage of investment as a percentage of GDP has fallen over the last 20 years. That is uh, different from the rest of the developing world, certainly. They're racing ahead of us. Uh, the World Economic Forum now puts us at 18th. We were previously at 7th in terms of the quality of our roads. So um, this stuff matters. You know, and, and again, going back to the sort of cost-benefit analysis, a lot of talk in the press of late of the cost of this stuff. A lot of your Hill staff, presumably, talking about the cost. How much is it going to cost? How are we going to pay for all this stuff? That's really the wrong... Uh, cost figure to be looking at because sort of the costs of inaction far, far, far outweigh what this will actually cost uh, to fix. Um, and that's really what I'm here to talk about, the cost of businesses. So U.S. businesses logistics costs. Um, in 2013, again, the most recent data I have, $1.4 trillion, that's trillion with a T, that's 8.2% of our GDP. That's a lot of money that companies spend on logistics costs. American businesses pay $27 billion extra a year in freight costs due to shipping delays and uh, raising prices on everyday products. Uh, the trucking industry alone, highway bottlenecks, cause them more than 240 million hours of uh, delays each year. That's about $7.8 billion annually. Um, looking at company-specific costs, General Mills, for every one-mile reduction in speed on their logistics supply chain, is $2 million in added logistics costs. Look at UPS. If UPS, if every UPS driver was delayed five minutes, that's a hundred million dollars annually to UPS. Hundred million dollars for one company. Nike spends an additional four million dollars per week to manage additional inventory due to shipping delays. Caterpillar, I go down the list. Millions and millions of dollars as well. Um, if infrastructure delays add just an extra couple of days to their shipping costs. In the most recent quarterly survey of 1,000 C-suite executives from mid-market companies, uh, a full 83% of those executives said U.S. infrastructure has a large impact on their businesses. Going back to the travel industry, U.S. Travel Association surveyed their members. 93% of their members surveyed said that greater investments in infrastructure are needed, 74% uh, saying it's extremely important to their business. 
Um, but it's not just businesses that this is costing. Families, too. All of these added costs on business end up out of your pocket as well. I mean, when you go to the store, again, everything you buy, those extra costs are resulting from extra logistics costs. If you look at the 90% of Americans below the top 10% of income distribution, so the bulk of the country may include certainly, uh, transportation costs can absorb one out of every $7 they bring in. Uh, it's almost twice as expensive for the bottom 90% as it is for the top 10%. Americans spend, on average, 5.5 billion hours, billion hours of, in traffic each year. Uh, they waste almost 3 billion gallons of gas doing so. That's a lot of fuel. It's about $120 billion worth of time and fuel. Those numbers are projected to rise to 8.4 billion hours and 4.5 billion gallons of gas by 2020. Um, the average motorist pays approximately $375 a year to fix their car due to potholes and uh, these other other um, traffic issues. Again, I think ARPA recently broke down, well, what would an increase, what would Congressman uh, Blumenauer's increase cost the average American per year? It's about $88 per year. That's what the gas tax increase his boss is proposing would cost average Americans, $88 per year. We'll weigh that against, again, 375 on average. And that's just the average for many metropolitan areas that's far higher. LA is almost $1,000. Um, but it's not just cost of your car, it's personal safety. Uh, you know, there's almost 30,000 traffic-related fatalities every year in this country, and they think a third of those, a solid third of those, are the result of poor roads, poor infrastructure. That's unacceptable. Unacceptable. I mean, that would be the equivalent of uh, a commercial airliner dropping out of the sky every week. Um, that's just not acceptable, but somehow that's become so normal we're just willing to kind of, well, that's you know, what it is, I guess. So all of this is to say that transportation is important. Uh, it's very, very important to businesses. It's very important to our members. It's very important to the U.S. economy. And we need to stop kicking the sort of can down the road. I mean, I think, why now? As, uh, as Paul stated, I mean, we've had a lot of extensions. Any small business owners in the audience or big business owners? Any billionaires in the audience? <laughs> uh, well, it doesn't matter the size of your business. If it's you and your garage or if it's 100,000 employees, businesses don't plan every day. The CEO doesn't wake up each morning and think, okay, how's today going to look? We're planning by They plan years and decades in advance, and that's why they need to know if this transportation system is going to be there is going to be serving their business and serving the economy for that many years in advance. What is it going to cost them? They need that certainty. This is above and beyond just the people who actually build infrastructure. That's a whole different bucket of companies. Construction firms, multi-billion dollar, multi-million dollar construction projects are not like a light switch. You can't just shut them on and off and pick them back up again. Um, that creates a lot, a lot of cost overruns. You have to get everyone back to the site. You have to get all the equipment back to the site. Uh, if the winter hits, you have to stop the construction altogether and wait for the spring to come back. That adds significantly to all these construction costs, exacerbating the very problem we're trying to solve. It's really mind-boggling, to be perfectly honest. 
Um, so, you know, we're talking about the importance, we're talking about how much money it costs. Well, delaying investment is not reducing that cost. Uh, far from it. It's, it's multiplying it many times over. Um, so, you know, I think um, now is the time to do something about it. In terms of uh, the federal role, it's another uh, point I wanted to touch on. A lot of talk uh, at the moment of sort of devolution, devolving the program back to the states, a very popular talking point at the moment. That's uh, just ridiculous, to be perfectly honest. Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, the U.S. has a long history from our absolute founding. The federal government has been involved in transportation. It's in the Constitution. It's in Article I of the Constitution. Uh, the importance of the federal government's role in transportation, regulating interstate commerce. I mean, yes, we are 50 states, and we're always striking the balance between federal power and state power, but we operate in the global economy as one country still. We are not the EU. Look at the problems the EU is having, frankly. Uh, you know, especially if you're trying, like many of my members are, to get goods across this country, the entire country. Many of my members, they come in every port, they use every road, they use every rail. Uh, they need to view that system as a whole. They don't want to have to stop in Florida and Georgia and Alabama and think, well, what is their system like? And how do I navigate that? It's incredibly cost prohibitive. <laughs> It's also prohibitive for investment. We talk a lot at the Chamber about private investment. This isn't just about public money. There's a lot of private money out there that is licking its chops at coming to this country and helping to pay for our infrastructure. I can't tell you how much of my time is being taken up recently about companies and countries uh, looking at the U.S. They see our needs. They see the federal government's willingness to pay for a lot of this stuff ability to pay for the stuff, uh, there's a real opportunity there, but it is a huge deterrent for them to get here and think, well, I'm coming to the U.S. to do business with the U.S. government, only to discover, I'm sorry, you're actually doing business with 50 state governments. Uh, if you want to invest in water infrastructure, wastewater, clean water, it's really more like 20,000 municipalities you'll be doing business with. That's a huge turnoff. Uh, there are entire countries who have written us off altogether because it's too cost prohibitive for them to come here and invest in U.S. infrastructure. So um, this is something we need to fix. Um, and I, you know, I'm frustrated by the sort of talking point of, well, there's no real political public willpower. I mean, I think as Michael said, look at the, look at the events across the country today alone. I mean, I think that's a pretty clear signal of the public uh, wanting to do something about this. Um, you know, members need to be held accountable. Washington needs to be held accountable. You don't get to just suck at your job and then leave. I mean, that's not how it works, uh, to be perfectly honest. Uh, this is something that, again, we've spent a long time developing, and we need to, we need to maintain it. So that's all. Happy to take uh, questions. Sorry if that wasn't too... Pessimistic, but. <laughs> and we're glad that Drew talked about exactly how he felt about the whole thing. <laughs> and 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 obviously he's reflecting what he hears every day from chamber members across the country. So let's open it up for any questions or comments. Um, and we have a microphone back here. And if you please identify yourself, please. Question? Okay, right over here. 
Uh, I arrived too late. I missed a couple of or one of the presenters. Uh, Mr. Prasad, the questions for Mr. Bruminers. Mr. President, I have a question for you. Uh, it was interesting to me that you outlined the importance, uh, in fact, the constitutional imperative of interstate commerce being a federal responsibility. Uh, and at one point, you suggested you didn't necessarily want to talk about uh, how to fund, and then you went on to enumerate a uh, member of your association's uh, members' uh, uh, costs because of uh, kind of a haphazard, a random infrastructure that we have in the country. And because it's a constitutional imperative, and because it costs your members and others so much, if there were not to be a long-term financial plan, it seemed to me you made a very good argument for general funding of transportation and infrastructure. I don't know that I've ever heard that the Chamber of Congress come out for that, but I'd be glad to be told today that you're in favor of general funding, if, if necessary. That's, that's one question. Uh, and then I had a question for the mayor. Uh, with regard to the instance where there's a national road running through a local municipality and upon repeated asks to fix the potholes, uh, uh, whether it be the Park Service or the Federal Highway Administration, not responding to those repeated asks, why would not the local municipality just fill the pothole itself and build the federal government? So those would be my two questions. Thank you. Okay. Sure. Sure. Um, so, no. Uh, the chamber is supportive of the user pays model. Economically, we feel it's the most efficient way to connect the users of the good with the good itself. The trust fund model has served us well for a very long time. The fuel tax has served us well for a very long time. Is it the solution for the next 100 years? Probably not. Uh, we'll have to look at something else, if it's a mileage-based user fee, uh, or whatever it will be, but uh, we still uh, see a lot of value in the user pays model, keeping that within transportation. Uh, the problem with general funds, of course, is it throws you into the same large pot as many other very important national priorities. I mean, I don't want infrastructure pitted against uh, research and development, scientific research, uh, foreign aid. I mean, um, so. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult because we do feel strongly enough in the federal responsibility, um, but in terms of the way Washington doles out its money, general fund is probably not uh, preferable. Okay. Uh, thanks for your question. Uh, you were asking why, why local governments don't uh, take, take the initiative and uh, there's a uh, pothole on a uh, interstate highway that runs through a jurisdiction. Why doesn't the local government come out and patch the pothole? Uh, well, there's a few reasons for that. Number one, we, we simply don't have the resources. Our, our resources are very, very constrained. We also plan very far ahead. Uh, local government, particularly municipalities, we, we don't have the tools when it, when it comes to raising revenue that they actually take on that responsibility. And at the same time, we, we are held accountable for that. I've read about instances where local governments have actually been, uh, you know, lawsuits have been filed uh, to try and uh, you know, get funding back for a pothole, breaks a suspension. So, you know, it's, it's a difficult, uh, difficult uh, situation to be in when you have the accountability, but you really don't have the resources to, to be able to respond. Okay, over here. 
Hi, a very good panel. Carol, uh, Andy Patterson with Environmental Business International. Certainly the transportation bill is job one, but let's broaden the conversation for the whole panel to state and muni finance, because that's kind of fallen off the table since the financial crisis, down from $350 billion a year to $200 billion a year. How do you see that unfolding from here? How does it fit into the picture? Michael, Emmett, Drew, um, I understand cities are, are constrained, but you've got to have a message about what you're going to do with the debt markets, not just the transportation bill. It has to be a broader discussion. Sure, I'll be happy to start off with that and, and appreciate the question, Andy. It takes a, a multitude of players to make these things work. When we look at Denver Union Station, tremendous economic development that's driven into Denver. 11 different funding and financing partners went into building that. And certainly public transportation infrastructure is a partnership. There's the federal government plays a role about 43% on average of the capital funding needs. States in most places play a role. Uh, local municipalities, whether through state set, through uh, local sales taxes or ad valorem taxes, contribute significantly, and obviously the passengers that pay every day when they get on and, and pay that fare. We can't move everything to a financing model. We have to pay for these things. And certainly as we look at PPPs, there's a place for them. And I think uh, Mr. DeFazio had an analysis done and figured out between 9 and 12% of the infrastructure projects could probably fit into a PPP model. But something like when you've got to build a, a new bus garage, there's no revenue stream to pay back that the funding for that asset. So it doesn't work as a PPP model. And as we look at the global space that is truly how PPPs work, those that play in the in a big way, play on an international level, on a global level. As they look at the U.S. with um, certainly cities that are, are challenged sometimes with, or in many places with the funding caps on what they can do for financing as they run into capacity limits, you know, where do they put those funds? They put them into you know, sewer, water, infrastructure, other things. They run into those caps. We look at those public-private partnerships with a myriad of 50 different state regulations, some that prohibit PPP projects, there's a very high risk quotient for doing PPPs in the U.S., much more so than even places like Canada and Australia that have national programs. And so we aren't as attractive as other countries might be. So we have to look at this. There's a lot of different parts to it, and there's a whole other discussion we can have on international funding and finance and how we fit into that. But just having local governments bond against future revenues and try to solve our infrastructure problems with that isn't the right solution, for sure. Thanks for the question. And Mayor, perhaps you want to jump in on a mayor perspective? Well, I, I could just say uh, that, that question about uh, municipal bond funding, uh, another one of NLC's priorities is, is trying to protect the deductibility of municipal bonds. There's some questions about that, so it's something we're really, really concerned with. We have the uh, you know, fixed dam, dams, water project, water infrastructure projects and bridges, and that, that deductibility of municipal bonds makes all the difference in the world. Uh, no, I think I think Michael um, covered it very well. I mean, I would just echo in terms of it's it's really um, we need the full menu of options. Really, that absolutely needs to be part of it. Um, look, states and localities they don't have the luxury of running deficits like the federal government can. Um, so. They often have been the real innovators in how we're paying for a lot of stuff because they have to be. Um, and I think there's a big question right now at the federal level about what can the federal government do or should it be doing to help uh, further open that market to private investment. But that, that absolutely has to be a big piece of it. Well, I can just talk to people who can hear me. 
I'm Bob Bartolo from Senator Casey's office. So the, um, so CMAQ funding, the congestion mitigation and air quality funding for clients for the Clean Air Act is folded into MAP 21. Um, and people didn't touch on that so much, but I just, I'm curious as your perspective for using CMAQ funding um, and the MAP 21 funding um, for the environment, for clean air, and, and what role will like some of the cities and states and businesses are playing for advocating for clean fueling infrastructure across the nation? Namely, say natural gas or hydrogen, or um, charging infrastructure across our interstate system. Sure. Go funding has been a critical uh, tool that's been used by uh, communities across the nation, obviously, for doing, uh, you know, kind of initially pilot projects to say, does it make sense to run this commuter line as a as a alternate to having a congested freeway or other projects like that? CMAC has been a great catalyst for getting things off the ground and establishing the need for different types of services has done a, a fantastic job. As we look at, but it's just one tool of, of many in the, in the portfolio. The alternative fuel question, great question. We're seeing it across the country. We have a uh, over 30, I don't remember the number now, about 38% of our fleet across the country right now in public transportation is a hybrid or alternative fuel. And we're seeing, obviously, the economics are driving now with the uh, cost differential between CNG, compressed natural gas, and diesel fuel. That's driving that even further. And we're seeing cities across the nation that are going all uh, alternative fuel. And I was just out in, in L.A. the last couple of days. They're even moving to the next stage. They're going from taking their all CNG fleets, moving them to portions of them that are all electric in their fleets. And so we're seeing a very rapid evolution. One of the things to remember there, too, is transit's been the place where they often do the innovative uh, development of these things. When you look at hybrid cars, hybrid cars started with hybrid buses because the hybrid systems were so they're as big as your table. They didn't fit in a car. So they started with the bus fleets and then migrated into the, into the automobiles. So there's a lot of good work going on in alternative fuels, and we're really proud of those efforts uh, across the country. We can supply that data. We've got data of what that looks like all across the country. So great question. Thank you so much for being here. Do any, Paul? Okay, great. Um, go ahead. Hi, uh, great, great panel, um, great discussion. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask if you could talk about a little bit more is so often when we hear about transit in the highway trust fund, we hear about you know what does the farmer in North Dakota care about you know transit funding? Why should they be paying for that? Um, truckers talk about well, we need to spend that money on, on interstate highways. Um, why should you know we be paying for transit? I'm wondering if you can deliver a, a message uh, of why it's important to those folks to fund transit. How does it impact them? Even though it might be right not not right in front of their face every day. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Go ahead. I'll start off. Uh, for some, thanks for throwing out North Dakota. Uh, as someone who used to run a bus manufacturing plant in North Dakota, one of the largest <laughs> employers in the state, I can tell you the impact of that. And I had I had three thousand supply supply vendors that supported that factory. And so when I was building buses for New York or Miami or L.A. or Seattle, was putting high-paying, high-quality jobs into a very rural community. Six hundred people lived in that town. Three hundred of them worked for us. The other ones went to school, and uh, and I think two of them worked at the gas station. So, it, it, but this isn't a unique story in North Dakota. It's happening all across the country. Look, you don't build your buses and rail cars in the middle of your downtown area. There's no bus plant down K Street here. 
you build them in these uh, rural communities all across the country. Look at the supply base, the family-owned businesses that build the wiring harnesses, the fabrics, the seats, the flooring, the windows are scattered all across this nation. And so you may say, why am I supporting funding to put infrastructure into New York City? Well, where do you think all those that infrastructure comes from? All that expertise that comes from across the nation. And we are creating high-quality, good-paying, good-benefit jobs. It's high technology. They're building all-electric buses that have inductive charging. They don't even touch anything. It comes up through the ground and then charges these vehicles. This is innovative stuff that's happening. That's, you know, it's in you know, Greensboro, South Carolina, Pamela, North Dakota, Alabama, you know, Oklahoma. This stuff is happening all across the country, and it's a, there's a good message there. This stuff really does all hit all 435 districts across the country. Uh, well, just I'd go back to the system as a whole. I mean, uh, you know, New Yorkers could make the same argument. Why should they be paying for North Dakota's roads? Uh, to be perfectly honest. Um, and again, for my members, it's part of a cohesive system. Uh, metropolitan areas are a major, major economic driver for the country. Uh, that's where a lot of our economic output generates from. So uh, we think that's pretty important. Transit's a big piece of that, absolutely. And getting that grain to market, right? Exactly. And uh, no, I'll, I'll chime in real quick. And I mean, if we're talking about uh, the growth of this nation, 100 million people, twice as much freight movement by 2050. I mean, it's inconceivable to think of that uh, moving all those people and goods on the network that we have. So, what we need to think about doing is how we can get more value out of the system that we have, and that means investing in transit and and other forms of transportation, not just roads. Very well said. Great. Well, I would also be curious in terms of, for example, you're up here a lot, Drew. What are you hearing when you talk about this? To members? To mm -hmm. members and staff? Mm -hmm. um, you know, <laughs> I always feel like the pessimist in the room. Uh, transportation, you know, I think a lot of us are the same way. Um, you know, I'm hearing a lot of private agreement, to be perfectly honest. So, um, it doesn't matter how Senate, Republican, Democrat. Um, I don't think there has been historically quite this broad agreement on transportation in some time. I mean, it's truly amazing. Um, everyone's talking about transportation. Everyone has finally bought into the importance of transportation. We're just hung up on how to pay for it. Um, and again, I'd go back to my remarks about the costs and weighing the sort of, well, what's the price tag for the bill? Um, versus the cost of the economy and the cost of businesses. The, those costs don't, like, score by CBO or JCT. I mean, um, that's not how that works. Um, so, you know, and again, I hear a lot of, well, we can't sell this back home. I mean, I think I've, I've lost count of how much I've heard that uh, line. You know, well, I, you know, and I'm glad the... League of Cities certainly uh, is here again. Look at the number of events around the country going on at the moment. Um, I mean, I think back home, people care about this. If you look at the states who have passed local or state transportation investment measures, uh, there are a lot of them. They're red states and they're blue states. Um, so um, I think a real groundswell is, uh, is upon us. And you know, time is right. The economy is still not on great footing. Um, now is not the time to really sort of remove one of the biggest uh, economic drivers we have. Um, far from it. Now is the time to, to increase investment in that. So. And it is pretty alarming in terms of what you were saying as far as the world ranking. 
for the for U.S. transportation yeah, infrastructure helps proceed. Um, Michael, did you want to add to any of that? And I had one last question that I also wanted to ask you: that as you have been seeing all of these communities um, rise up and talk about how critical these needs are to really making things work and to run. And as you've talked to media who are covering these kinds of events, what what are the questions? What what seems to make a difference in terms of dealing with reporters? What what do they see as being the key questions that should be answered? Here's here's one of the most important things I think to touch on, and I appreciate asking the question. When we were we were kids, many of the members of Congress were kids. We had a, a binary choice for transportation: you drove a car or you took transit. You did one of the two. And people didn't live in our downtowns, and they lived in the suburbs, and they <coughs> drove it just well. They took transit, one of the two. That's not what our economy is now. It has changed dramatically. We have many millennials, many are in the room. You live in the downtown areas. Baby boomers, also in the room. You are moving back into downtowns. We are living a lifestyle. I live car free here in DC. We want choices. Now you can take a shared use car, a shared use bike, a bus, a train, a trolley, all in the same week. It's okay to have a car. You're going to run someplace on the weekends to do that. I use a zip car to do that. But to have all these choices, and that's the real economy. That's what's happening now. That's what our communities are driving. That's what they're demanding. As businesses come, as they meet with mayors, and they say, hey, I want to bring my business to town, one of the top five questions they ask is, tell me about your transportation infrastructure. Can I get good people to come work for my company? Can I attract them to your livability of my community? Can I get them in a safe, reliable, dependable way to and from work every single day? When you think about what our cities looked like 20 years ago, they were very domestic in how they looked. There were people that were from that area that worked and lived there. Look at our cities now. They're very, very international. And our industries are that way. Our country is that way. And our global competitiveness is dependent on that. And so we have to look at the needs for transportation infrastructure and our investment in our country through this lens of what's happening now and where are we going, what's changing, that if we aren't positioned to have good transportation choices as our, as our economy changes, everyone moves, but many people move back into our downtown areas, we won't be able to compete. And those cities that don't have it will be left behind. Is that pretty fair, Mary? Mary? That's, uh, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> And we want him to be able to continue as a mayor, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so I want to thank all of you for being here for this terrific panel. And I also want to um, make sure that you know that APTA has left um, uh, the new report that there's information out on this, the uh, sign-in table outside. So be sure to pick that up when you leave. And also, uh, be sure to check out this web tool that APTA's developed, because I think you'll find it very, very interesting. And hopefully, it will spur everybody to a greater understanding and, and action. Thank you. All right.